transportation matters. The CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. Hello and welcome. In this episode of Transportation Matters, Daimler Trucks and Buses CEO Martin Daum meets Terry Stotts, NBA head coach of the Portland Trailblazers, to talk about leadership, teamwork, and performance. Hi, Terry. Great to be with you. I always love the Trailblazers. I always love your coaching style. And therefore, for me, it's a great honor that we have that conversation today about team and leadership and strategy. But let me start with a personal anecdote I had once in the, in the Moda Center when I watched the game. And I watched the game Trailblazers against Dallas Mavericks. And for me, that is really special because in Dallas played my all-time favorite, Dirk Nowitzki. I'm a huge fan. As a German, I have mm -hmm. to. When Dirk played, I always cheered for Dirk. And I'm a Blazer fan, so I cheered for the Portland Trailblazers. And that irritated my neighbor on the seat because he thought I didn't get the game. You have a Dallas Mavericks, uh, you know, history. Mm -hmm. uh, and as an assistant coach, when you were there, you won the championships in 2011. Who won the championship, Dirk Nowitzki or the team? Uh, that's a good question because the answer is both. Dirk was outstanding. Uh, Dirk had a tremendous series. He carried the team. But there were a couple games, I think maybe even game six, where he had a slow first half and the team really came through. And when you talk about winning a championship, it goes beyond just winning the final series. And so to answer your question, we had, I don't know how many players throughout the course of, of that championship run where different players helped us win certain games. Jason Terry, Peja Stojakovic, Jason Kidd, Sean Marion, Brian Cardinal, Jan Mahimi. I mean, you go down the list and there wasn't one player that did not help us win a game during that championship series. You know, we played Portland, we played the Lakers, we played Oklahoma City and we played Miami. And so there were a lot of games where you needed a team. But there's no question that we would not have won this. I don't even know if we get to win a series without Dirk Nowitzki. Mm -hmm. and, and that is, it continues today. Because if you look at today's NBA, they say you need two stars to win a championship. Or can you still win a championship with just one star or no star and just a great team? To be honest, to win a championship, you need both. You know, you, you have to have enough talent to win not just a series, but you have to win four series to win a championship. And to do that, you need the talent to do that. But the talent has to mesh as a team. You don't win it with just two good players. You win it because you have a good team. So, you know, right now, the way the NBA is going, you know, there was a, in Miami, they had three all-stars, three Hall of Famers. Same thing with Golden State. The Miami Heat and the Golden State Warriors rank among the most successful NBA teams of the last 10 years. Both Miami and Golden State had three or more players on their roster considered superstars and a wealth of top role and bench players who all contributed to outstanding team play. As a result, in recent years, Miami won two NBA championships and Golden State won three. I think now you're seeing that There isn't a team that has three of them, but I think all the best teams have at least two all-stars because talent does win in this league. And that's interesting for us. I mean, I look here, the, the, the semblance to business as well. Uh, sometimes in our job, teamwork is not 
looked as so positive. You know, teamwork is where you can hide your mistakes. Mm -hmm. Teamwork is when mediocre guys get together and try to do something. Mm -hmm. But I think it's wrong. You know, you need really, I, I, therefore I like what you said about the Dallas championship. You know, you need someone to step up when the star does not have that good day on Dallas. You know, the thing about, and I don't know how it works in business, but look, I think most people in this world are usually involved in some type of team. You know, it can be a small group, a big group, whatever it is, but they, most people work with other people. And in order that, for that group to be successful, they have to work well together. They have to understand their roles. They have to accept their roles. Um, and they have to be proficient in their roles. And uh, to me, I've always thought that sports in a lot of ways kind of symbolizes what a lot of people go through in in their day-to-day -day lives or in their day-to-day -day work lives. And for me, that means when you have the team, bringing the team together, uh, I call that the true diversity, that you have so completely different uh, characters, you know, trying to fit to each other. Characters potentially who never would meet each other in a private life, right. but you bring them together. Have you experienced that too? Or do you prefer teams where everyone thinks and acts the same? No, I think that's difficult to, to even try and assemble a group like that. You know, everybody has their own likes, dislikes, personalities. I think one of the challenges in the NBA in particular is that we spend so much time together. Uh, we're on the road together. There are very few days off. And so you have to be able to get along with your teammates, with your coaches, but understand that there is a difference. That's one of the challenges, I think, when you're when you're coaching a team, especially coming into a, a new team or when you add a lot of new players, is getting that cohesion and understanding and acceptance of, of each other and understand that everybody has strengths and weaknesses and you try and make take advantage of, of your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. And Uh, but everybody needs to be able to contribute in their own way. And uh, when you now, as a coach, come to that team, are you part of the team or are you outside the team? You know, as a head coach, obviously I'm a, I'm a part of the team, but I do, I think I separate myself a little bit because I can't be one of the guys because I have to make tough decisions. Mm. You know, I make decisions that impact players' lives, careers, uh, wins and losses. And, you know, I'm in charge of making sure everything goes okay. So I, I have to separate myself, but I do try and be myself around the players, be myself around the coaching staff, because I am part of it. I, I'm with them. They see me every day. You know, I'm not stuck in my office. Uh, there's an interaction. I have interaction with all the players and all the coaches almost every day. So uh, my my leadership style, my coaching style is more involved, and uh, I solicit people's opinions. And uh, you know, I'm not. I try not to stay in an ivory tower and and try and be above mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, I do pick my spots as well. Uh, we in business, we use sports a lot as an analogy. And therefore, we talk here about team building because team for us is important too. And we have stars who contribute a lot, you know, on the other side. Uh, we have a lot of people who carry then the daily load. We have to work together, but we have to have different personalities. So that all fits into the business world. How is that on the sports world? You look sometimes to the business world. I know that you have an MBA. So does it help you to be a better coach or is it positive? Um, you know, it's, um, I'm, I'm proud that I got my MBA. I don't know how much it uh, carries over. I did probably my favorite course during my whole MBA program was organizational management and group dynamics. And I really enjoyed that because I think 
that is probably the biggest carryover. You know, I had economics and accounting and statistics and all that, but really my job is beyond the X and O's of basketball, it's group dynamics and small groups, whole groups, individual, you know, two or three people groups. So I think that is the biggest carryover for me from everything I studied in my MBA program. But, you know, I'm curious, you know, like you are, you're the CEO of a huge company. And obviously you have thousands of people, I imagine, that are part of your team. What I do is a very small group. And so I would imagine, and it's a question for you, is that how do you manage, you have your your vice presidents and presidents, and now they they are basically your assistant coaches, and you're looking over hundreds of groups. And so I have the ability as a leader to oversee a small group of people, whereas being a CEO of a company, to me, that's interesting to, can you even use the same analogies as a coach who is overlooking such a small group? I would say yes, because on the one side you have your, your direct group, and that's when I look, the people I interact on a, on a daily or weekly basis. I come to 15, 20, which is about your team size, and, and we really have to work in unison. If we, if we don't act like a team, the, immediately the entire organization realizes that, mm-hmm. and that's a rift then through the organization you can't get things done. So that's the one situation where I would say it's absolutely similar. However, I would be called then a player's coach. Yeah, that is sometimes a difficulty, you know, mm-hmm. that sometimes I take the ball by myself mm-hmm. uh, and start throwing it by myself, which would not, it's not always good as it would potentially in your job not right. good. But then the other reality is that I have a feeling you have about to up to 250 people you can keep in your head the names and the histories you know and, right. and you know a little bit more than just the name face recognition right. and and that's for me the next level of management uh-huh. where I really try to influence and, and speak directly through them like podcasts like that mm-hmm. yeah like uh, quarterly calls like management conferences mm-hmm. and I want really want them on the same page same philosophy leadership philosophy thinking and then you have then 100,000 other people and mm-hmm. that is mostly the crowd which is unfortunate because it's all individuals, but you need the 250, you know, to go so in when, your spirit. So when you went from North America in Portland, and I don't know how many people you were managing then, and now you a CEO of Daimler for the world. Yeah. I mean, certainly that had to change your leadership dynamics a, a little bit. Definitely. And, and on top comes, you know, the different nationalities, yeah, that different thinking, upbringing of people, you know, that, that diversity, that India is completely different than Brazil mm-hmm. or, or, or Europe and U.S., it's already two things. But you have the same experience. You have a lot of European mm-hmm. and non-American players on your team as well. Do you see sometimes a, a kind of a coaching difference? Yes and no. Uh, certainly the background that a lot of the players come into this league, whether it's European or South American or poor or well-off. I mean, everybody is unique in how they come into the league, and you have to take that into account. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic because every player who is here, their goal was to be here. And doesn't matter where they came from, they did whatever they needed to do to get to this point in the NBA. So they have that in common. And whatever the work ethic, obviously they're all talented, but the work ethic and all that it took for them to get to this point, they share. And you had with, with Nowitzki and Chris came and you had two Germans to coach. Are they and, easier? And Detlef Schrempf. Oh, uh, yeah, Detlef Schrempf. Detlef yes, Schrempf right. in Seattle, yes. Okay. 
Detlef Shrimp played from 1985 to 2001 for NBA teams, including the Indiana Pacers and the Seattle Supersonics. He was considered the best and most successful German player in the NBA before Dirk Nowitzki entered the league. Are Germans easier to coach than the average NBA player or more difficult? Well, let's put, first of all, Chris Kamen is an American who, who got a German passport. So I'm not going to say Chris Kamen is nothing like Dirk Nowitzki or Detlef Shrimp. So I'll talk about Detlef and Dirk. And it's not a question about being easy or difficult. The thing that those two guys shared was uh, an incredible work ethic. They were very disciplined in their approach to their player development, in their routine. Um, they were very structured and that helped them get to where they are. And they're different personalities, but their work ethic was, uh, and their discipline was, was remarkable. When we go to strategy, a couple of very short questions. What is a more successful strategy, copying or developing your own? Uh, you know, in basketball, uh, I think everybody copies and develops it to fit their team. I look at other teams all the time and what are they doing? And if it works for them, would it work for us? And if do we have to do anything, develop that philosophy to fit our people? Um, we did that uh, after my first year, we wanted to get better defensively. And so we looked at like the three or four best defensive teams. And we said, well, maybe we should do this with our team. So in a way we copied it. I think Every coach in the NBA will say that we all copy from everybody, but we also like to put a little wrinkle and tweak it to make it better for us. And, you know, what's funny about that is, you know, I've been in the NBA for 25 years and we had a play in, in Seattle that worked really well. And we said, and then we went to Milwaukee and said, man, this play will really work well with these two guys. Well, it didn't work well at all. We had to throw it out because... What worked well in Seattle, the same play didn't work well in Milwaukee. So in that sense, you have to kind of personalize it to suit your team. And that's potentially in our industry the same, you know, because we, for us, benchmark is always very important. But for me, every company, you know, from the big companies in our industry, everyone has its own history, its own strengths, you know, its own footprint, its own image. And I would say we have to really try to learn as much as possible, but then to adopt it to your system. So I would say this is absolutely the same. You know, you have Daimler trucks. Can you take something from a car company? No, we, yeah, yes, but we can take can it from Can you take a, something from a computer company? Yes, I, I tell everyone, trucks never invented anything. Yeah, we always <laughs> took it from someone, yeah? We are far too small industry. Uh, we can't invent computers, you know? But if someone invents computers, we take them. Uh -huh. Or the, the, the whole e-vehicles, even on the Pasca industry. I mean, the pioneers on the uh, batteries are the, the cell phone manufacturers. Mm -hmm. they, they came up with lightweight, relatively cheap batteries, mm -hmm. which then make car production, electric car production possible. Uh, now we, we have to, to start invent our own thing on the battery side because longevity was never a trait, you know, the, the, the cell phone manufacturers are looking for because they want you every two years a new, right, right. A new cell phone, which right. unfortunately in our industry, people don't throw away their cars <laughs> after two years, which we would love. Or trucks, yeah, they want to run the trucks a million miles and, and then throw them away. Uh, we, we rarely invent, we just adopt and bring it into our industry. And the same thing is with our competitors. When our competitors come out with a new truck, and I know they do that with our trucks the same, we purchase a truck, most likely two, one we drive, 
And the second one to take it apart and learn what they did and whether they had any idea we haven't had so far mm-hmm. and whether what you can learn out of that. So the, I would say this is pretty similar to you guys. Another discussion we have uh, sometimes in our company is what is the role of a target? Is a target a promise you have to reach at all cost? Or is a target a kind of far goal which helps you to develop the best in you, but you might not reach it, but that's okay? You know, uh, I really struggle with uh, setting, setting goals like number goals in the NBA. I don't know if I've ever been with a team that said we're going, our goal is to win 40 games, or our goal is to win 45 games. Because in the NBA, it's a zero-sum game. Somebody wins, somebody loses. So there's a finite number that can be achieved. Now in business, you know, you can set a target for sales, revenues, income, whatever, and exceed it, and then based on next year, and the economy grows, and, but it's not a zero-sum game in business. May I disagree? Well, we have market share, and it's 100% market that's share. True. That's is true, you, but the, is your goal market share? Or is your goal uh, a fixed number of revenue or income? I mean, at the end of the day, it's you maximize your profit. That's what the shareholders want. That's what your employees want because that's what you pay the salaries from. But ultimately, for me, it's market position. And there comes market chain. You know, if you don't buy your market, uh, if you earn it, then it's the most. But can you jump from what's your market share? uh, In North America, we are short of 40 percent. Okay, so is a realistic goal to be 50 percent next year? No. No. So, you know, like we can go from 40 to 50 wins. We can go from 42 to 45 wins. You know, it's unrealistic to think you're going to go from 50 to 60 wins. So, but you can certainly, in a bad season, you can go from 50 wins down to 35 the next year. Where I don't see because losing is always easier, <laughs> but that's with us too. Losing customers is always easier than yeah. winning customers, but, but we don't want it. Right, but that's a good. And I apologize because I, I do think market share is is a very yeah. good analogy. If you're forty percent market share right now, what do you? What is your goal next year to win? Have forty one percent, forty two percent? You know, that's. I think that's difficult for me. It's difficult to say we want to go from just a number of wins. What I do believe is that my goal is always to, our goal is always to have be in the top 10. We have 30 teams. To be in the top 10 in offense and to be the top 10 in defense. And if you're in the top 10 in both of those categories, you're going to be one of the top teams in the league. And it, you know, changes from year to year. I would say this about Daimler. You're going to be, you're, you're going to be top 10. You're going to be, yeah, yeah. You're gonna, every year you're going to be, you're going to be pretty good. You know, you're the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, and, and actually that is that is great, that analogy, because for me, it's market share itself is not a target. Right. Yeah, I, I always say, if I can get a higher market share by slamming my fist on my, my desk, I potentially have a broken fist or a broken desk or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, market share, you can't have market share as a goal. You have to be, therefore, like uh, your best defensive or best offensive mm-hmm. team. You need to have a product the customer like. You have to have the lowest fuel uh, consumption. You have the highest reliability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have yeah. the best service network. You know, right. you have to look in those categories right. that matters most. And if you're on top in all of those categories, there you go. then the market share no, that's is excellent. Yeah, that's an excellent that's analogy. A, yeah. Yep. And therefore, it it, it works yeah. with your yeah. with, with, and then and you always have to be cognizant that the others have the same idea. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if you lead in fuel efficiencies, what will what will the others do? They work on their fuel efficiency. Right. 
If right. you have the best service network, what will the others do? They improve their service network. You always have to find your no, own, that's interesting. own game. Yeah. yeah. But getting back to, you know, like the goals and the targets and things like that, it's um, I don't like putting unrealistic goals. You know, I think I think goal setting is really difficult because what type of goal? Because you want it to be attainable. And if you don't attain it, then, you know, where you go. So you setting it where it's realistic and not out of... That's why I think top 10 is realistic. You know, maybe you can, maybe you don't get in the top 10 of both. Maybe you get top 10 in, in offense like we did. But um, I think realistic goal setting is, is important to a degree. Mm-hmm. And you do that for the team itself or you have that for every individual player at the beginning of the season? You know, I think the players are aware of their statistics. Um, I think I don't go through every player and say, statistically, you should average this many points per minute played or... Uh, I do believe I like our players. You know, you should shooting percentage is a realistic number to shoot for. You know, basketball is a very statistics-driven game. During a game, you can score via free throws, field goals, and three pointers. Shooting percentage determines how many attempted shots actually go in. Having a high percentage for different shots means that a player is a very precise and consistent scorer. You should shoot for 40% from three. You should shoot for 80% from the free throw line, depending on who you are, if you're a good shooter. Um, but as a team, uh, I'll tell when I talk to the team before we start training camp, I will tell them almost exactly what I told you. I'm not going to say how many wins we're supposed to have. We talk about winning the division, winning, making the playoffs, winning the division, winning the conference, winning a championship, you know, in those levels, whatever it takes to do those things. That's our goal. It's not about a specific number, but I will tell them to do that. We need to be uh, in the top 10 of both. Interesting. Like we're, uh, I think we're third or fourth in offense last year, which was really good, but we were in the bottom five in assists, bottom, bottom seven in assists which kind of was contradictory. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing to me, I would love to have been a better passing team, but the most important thing was that we're in the top top five in offense. So that was more important than whatever said I, whether we should average 25 assists. Mm-hmm. Most important thing is that we were a good offensive team. What I always wonder is, in these short breaks during an NBA game, you know, the timeouts, mm-hmm. Are you really telling those players something meaningful? Uh, I'd like to think so. I hope so. Basketball is not necessarily a difficult game, but uh, I think it depends in the timeouts. It depends on the situation. I'm not necessarily a long talker. Um, Those timeouts, especially national TV games, get to be a little long. You know, I have about a minute that I can make whatever point that I want to make, unless I'm really upset. And then I can go longer. But to me, those timeouts, it's an opportunity for the players to obviously get their rest, catch their breath. What I try and do in the timeouts is give a little synopsis of what's been going on, what we can do better, or what we've been doing well. And then going into play, give them a play or two that we want to run and just kind of encourage them to keep playing hard. But it is meaningful, but I think the different things that you're trying, depends on the situation of the game, that what you're trying to get accomplished with those timeouts. Have you ever experienced that in a halftime because of your speech, you could turn around a team completely? The answer is no. From an NBA standpoint, uh, I think in college you can. I think there's uh, you're dealing with younger players, very emotional. The dynamics between the coach and players is different. When we play 82 games, 82 regular season games, I can get upset four, six times a year maybe. 
But if you do that too often, uh, it loses its effect. But I think the most important thing about halftime is that you're genuine. And whether it's genuine discontent with what's going on, if you're really upset or if you're really happy or, you know, trying to keep them going or whatever it is. But to answer your question, can you turn around a team at halftime with a talk? I think you can have an impact. But once they start playing the third quarter, I think they forget what I said in the locker room. (laughs) (laughs) And what we have in, in, in business, always a discussion too is, What has a bigger impact on motivation if you praise a player, say, hey, great game, you are, I'm so amazed how you're playing, or is it more the criticism? You know, you played yeah. fairly well, however. You know, I try, I really try to be uh, mostly on the positive side. I think that suits my personality. I do think that praising good behavior uh, reinforces that behavior, but The, the converse of that is a lot of coaches say a basketball is a game of mistakes and you have to uh, correct mistakes. So more about the criticism, it's not necessarily the criticism, but the manner in which it's done. You know, how you can do something better rather than saying you're not doing something. Again, even if there is criticism, I try and reinforce it with with what they have done well, whether it's in that game or a previous game or what we've practiced so that they have uh, kind of a, a point of reference that they can use to to be better. And the other part of it is our players are pretty smart, and they know when when things aren't going well. A lot of the criticism that we do, and I shouldn't say criticism, it's more uh, critiquing and improving, is after the game, maybe the next day, and watching video of, and when you watch video of a team, you can really reinforce the positive and correct something that didn't go the way you wanted to and you can talk about it in video. I think the when in the emotional time during a game or at halftime or timeout is kind of a it's difficult to correct behavior in that short of mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. You can point it out, but I don't know how much it's going to get corrected as far as a teaching point. That's why you try and stay stay positive because I am a believer that to be a good player you have to have confidence and you have to have a belief that things are going to work out and You do that with positive reinforcement. And I would say that's the same for us in business too. Yeah, I, I say always, you have to love the people. Yeah, and you have to really believe in your counterpart, regardless on what level that guy is. Mm-hmm. And, and that gives him a more, far more inner strength, mm-hmm. you know, to perform well and to improve his or her game mm-hmm. than if, if you go in and said, hey, you, you couldn't do that. And why didn't you do that? Right. Yeah. There's not a player out there that is purposely not doing something. I mean, you would like to think that they're trying their best and maybe their best wasn't good enough or maybe they weren't mentally focused on what they should be doing. And to me, that's the bigger challenge is not what they're physically not doing. A lot of it is the mental part of it is being engaged, being focused, being uh, aware of what you're supposed to be doing at a certain time. As, as, as a visitor to a game, for me, sometimes the most stressful moment is when you have a player who goes for three-pointers, you know, and he's 0 for 5. Mm-hmm. And then he tries a 6-1. Mm-hmm. And you as a visitor know exactly this is not going in. And it's not going in. It's 0 for 6. And that is when we start cursing at the coach. Don't give that guy the <laughs> tell that guy he shouldn't. And you know, and that's 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 a good point. And I, I that kind of ties into what I was just saying earlier is that I think you have to give the players belief that if that guy is a three-point shooter, if Damian Lillard missed his first five shots, he needs to take his sixth shot. Now, if it's a player who is not a a great three-point shooter, then maybe he has to rethink it. But to me, what he has done in the past in that game cannot dictate 
he's got to take that sixth shot. And as a coach, I think shot selection is really tough because players have to believe and have a confidence that when they shoot, it's going to go in. If you're thinking about whether you should shoot or not shoot, then it's not going to go in. I'm a huge believer in in the confidence aspect of, of shooting the basketball. When you look at players, and that is sometimes I look when I look at young kids coming into the junior management role, I, I try to assess their potential. And now in basketball, if I go to ESPN, they have these curves, you know, where the entire career, the next seven years of right. that player uh, mm-hmm. is mapped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that as a coach for you something which determines the future? Or is that something as a coach that uh, uh, motivates you to do better? It's interesting. You talk about, you know, you recruiting talent for your company. And, you know, when you're recruiting, I would imagine you're hopefully recruiting a a person who can work for you 20, 30 years, you know, has that kind of talent. When we recruit players, we hope that he has a five or 10 year career. So from a coaching standpoint, I, I try and get the most out of out of the team that I can that particular year. What we've done in the past few years is that young talent doesn't necessarily play a lot their first two years. It's about improving, learning the game, getting stronger, and then going from there and hopefully extending their career. And we've had a a good track record of some players who have gone on to, whether it's C.J. McCollum, who didn't play much his first two years, Alan Crabb, Pat Connaughton, Jake Lehman. So we've had a lot of players who we've been able to develop over time. I don't get into the the recruitment, the drafting of players. Uh, I think our, our front office, Neil O'Shea, our general manager, and his staff do a great job of identifying talent and talent that would work well within our system. And I don't know how it is for you in the business. I assume it's the same, is that, you, you know, you look at a resume, you look at what the person has done, uh, but it's what's inside that person, and it's difficult to evaluate how that person is going to grow. You can see, you can judge them on the past, but you really don't know, is he going to take the challenge? Is he going to not be content being where he is? You know, going, where is he going? And what's inside of him that pushes him to get to where he wants to go? Yeah, and I think that's, that's very important to see what, what kind of character is in it. Because for me, is uh, particular knowledge and in, in your in your trade, you know, particular strategies or plays, you can always learn. But character is so much more difficult mm-hmm. to, to change. So I need people who are not frustrated, you know, who, whom you really can't frustrate. Even as a bad leader, you know, <laughs> you can't frustrate them. They just do their job, you know, yeah. or, uh, or they don't blame circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, they they try to adopt them. If circumstances are different, then mm-hmm. they adopt their game uh, and play accordingly. Almost every player gets to this level of the NBA has a, a very high confidence level in themselves. And whatever they did to get to this point, they have confidence. Um, I think they look at themselves, certainly. Um, I think you and I, I think as, as leaders, you tend to look at yourself, what can I do better? Um, when you're talking with young people and they're striving to get to a certain point, I think it depends how hard they are on themselves. You know, I think that's that's really difficult to judge because there's certainly a lot of people, not just players, people who look at look to blame other people and then obviously they look at themselves and what I can do better and then there's some that have a little bit of both. And I don't know if there's one right way of doing it. Whatever gets you to the next level is probably the best way for you. 
when you think of players on the court, you know, some are very good role players and some are true leaders on the court. What would you say, what do you look into people that they are good leaders on the court? What, what are the traits? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I'd like to ask that of you too, because, you know, I know other industries where you can be a great individual, uh, but now you get promoted because you're a good salesman and now you get promoted and now you're managing people and now you're not, that wasn't your strength. Yeah. Your strength was doing what you do best, yeah. and now you're put in a position of, of leadership. In basketball terms, I'll take this from two, from two different angles. One is from players' angles. I think leadership is, you can be given leadership because of, of, of a title, uh, but I think within a player, just because you're the best player doesn't mean you're automatically a leader, even though people expect you to be. I've been very fortunate through my career that some of the best leaders I've been around haven't been the best player, but they have such a great work ethic and they have the respect of their teammates that they can say things to their teammates. They can do something because of how they conduct themselves, how hard they play, how passionate they are about winning, that they become leaders because of the respect their teammates have for them. I think it's really difficult in situations where you are the best player and you're not a natural leader and maybe you don't have the respect of your teammates because uh, for whatever reason, but you're still looked upon to be a leader. And I think that's really difficult for the player and for the team because understanding that, that, that dynamic is difficult for everybody. And if you have your best player who is leadership does not come naturally, hopefully you have somebody on your team who can be a sidekick, mm -hmm. who can help him be that leader that you need him to be without necessarily being in the leader. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But the other part of it I want to say is when you identify leadership is for me having my assistant coaches. You know, when I hire assistant coaches and what I'm looking for from them, and I've been fortunate to have some good assistants who have grown as assistant coaches, but you can see the potential as uh, being leaders. I don't know if I knew that when I hired them, but I've seen their growth that, I, that they will become leaders of their own teams at some point. Very interesting. And I would say fairly similar because I think we see that in the business context similarly. I would say the biggest problem is if you have someone who is individually really absolutely great, great ideas, great knowledge, a lot of personal passion, that it's me, 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 me. You know, it's, it's this egocentric. The, mm -hmm. the, the idea is without me, the entire company goes mm -hmm. down. Right. Yeah? Yeah. And, and for me, a good leader has always to have the understanding. I have to lead. Yes, I have a lot of talents, but without the others, you know, I, I can't win it in your terms. I can't win a championship in our terms. I can't be successful Yeah, to, to really respect the participation of other people. Well, you, you know, we were talking about Dirk Nowitzki. So he was a he was a unique leader because obviously he had the respect of his teammates because one, he was a great player. Two, he had a tremendous work ethic and discipline. Three, he cared about winning. So no one questioned his motives. Nobody nobody could question what was important to Dirk. So even though he wasn't necessarily a, a rah-rah guy who was going to you know, come on, vocal all the time. When he spoke, it was really important. But he had a presence on that team that he could carry the team with his leadership. We might have had some other guys who spoke more, but he was uh, unquestionably the, the leader of the team. 
I had once a, a mentor who told me uh, a good leader does not get average results from above average people. He gets above average results from average people. And then he smiled and said, and Martin, most of us are just average people. Yeah, so That's pretty good. I like that. I like that. I don't know at this level, certainly, like I said, to get to get to become an NBA player, everybody is probably above average. But once they get here, then there, there's, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a rating system where there's some excellent yeah. and average NBA players and below average NBA players. So, uh, yeah, to me as a coach is if you can get everybody to play a little bit better than their level, uh, that's, that's all you can ask for. And that is what I love about the NBA basketball, that every team can beat every other team. You know, it's not like sometimes in other sports where you have these rich teams think they can buy all the stars, and mm-hmm. then you have the underdogs where it's very unlikely mm-hmm. that they can beat the favorite. You know, in, in NBA, everything is possible. It really is, and it can change because of the dynamics of a team where if you get one or two good players, it can really shift uh, the dynamics of your position within the league and sustaining uh, a level of excellence. Like I'm, I'm just amazed by San Antonio and what they've been mm-hmm. able to do for, for 20 years, 22 years, being the playoffs every year. And they have, they have great coaching. They have great players. They've done a great job of uh, making decisions along the way. Uh, sustaining a level of excellence in the NBA is something that I'm, you know, I, I, I'm really impressed by. But San Antonio is a good example, and in my opinion, Portland is going the same way. Uh, and for me, this is a role model for, for business as well. That is continuity. Yeah, If you have the same coach, yeah, like San Antonio forever, Popovich, 200 years or so coaching. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like that, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, Portland, no, you know, Terry starts seven years, you know, another it's, uh, you know, the, 20 in the making. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, that's the, in, the interesting thing about continuity is obviously, you, uh, I think in this league, you have to have success to have the continuity. Uh, what comes first, the continuity or the success? If you're not successful, then there's, uh, there's an impetus to have change. And a lot of times that comes with the coach. But when I look at, I'm getting to the position, I'm going into my eighth season with Portland. So now I'm, I'm looking at, Greg Popovich and Jerry Sloan and Pat Riley and Phil Jackson, play, coaches who have been in one place for a long time. Uh, Jack Ramsey was here for 10 years. What The dynamics of me as a coach, how much do I change? How much do I stay the same? Uh, does it get stagnant? Uh, how much freshness do I need to bring? Some of that becomes, we have six new players this year, so that'll bring some freshness to the team. But I think it's a really interesting dynamic uh, how you coach a team in your first and second year versus your seventh and eighth year. And when you have like Damian Lillard's been here the whole time with me, and so we're kind of like a uh, a combo. We're a team that you know we have we've grown together, and how, so I will talk to him about what we need to do next year and the dynamics with the team because. We're not the same. Damien's 29 years old, and you know he's not the same player that he was, and we have an older team this year. So it's going to be a challenge for me uh, as a coach because of how long we've been here and the new players on the team. But I think this is with a continuity, and you used the right word. They shouldn't, stagnant would be the wrong thing. Yeah? Mm-hmm. If you, for me, it's continuity, even if it's not successful, and you, you see increases over the last year, mm-hmm. then it's always a better 
way than to blow something up because right. blowing up for me is always a sign I have no strategy. You know, I throw all the, the puzzle pieces in the air and hope that when they fall back on the table, I get a new idea. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Again, in sports uh, and I guess in basketball, but when you want to start over. And the one of the things that I think is challenging is in today's society, like if you don't win a championship, you're not winning. And I have a problem with that because I think you can have a successful season without winning a championship. Obviously, everybody wants to win a championship. But if you're making the playoffs here every year and you have a chance to, all you want is a chance to win a championship. But uh, so many times uh, you hear this uh, in the media or you hear this in social media about, well, they should just blow it up because they're not going to win a championship. I, I think that really discounts winning in general and being a successful franchise. Absolutely exciting, yeah? And uh, what I really like, there is so much similarity because being successful in sport and coaching a team uh, as in business. And I love to use, you know, sports analogies because sometimes I'm feeling people, everyone is an expert in sports. Very few are experts in management. <laughs> so, so you can, you, you have always a better understanding. So have you, do you read social media? Are people talking about, the good job that you do on social media or the bad job that you do on social media? Like if you made a decision as CEO of Daimler and somebody went on Twitter and said, I can't believe what Martin Dom just said. If I feel too good and want to be a little bit depressed, I go on social media <laughs> and read the comments. But normally I feel, uh, I, I just go, go ahead. I, we have our departments. But we, we try to do so good decisions that uh, social media is pleased, but it's extremely difficult, but potentially in your job similarly. To please social media is one of the most difficult departments yeah. because you could always win a championship yeah. every single day. And, right. and by the way, 82-0 is the right. target for your, <laughs> for your games. No, I wish you for the next season all the best. I wish you a, a lot of exciting games and I look forward to be in some of them. Yeah. Martin, it was, uh, it was a pleasure to be here. And for those of you listening to the podcast, everybody should check out the commercial with the threes for trees uh, that we did a few years ago. Martin makes shooting threes look so easy. Yeah. Thanks, Coach. All right, thank you. There are striking parallels and similarities between being a successful leader in both professional basketball and in business. Our takeaways are first... A good leader gets above-average results from average people. Second, to win a championship, you need both a good team and stars who can make the difference. And third, copying successful concepts can sometimes be better than reinventing everything. Thanks for listening to Transportation Matters, our Daimler Trucks and Buses podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, hit like and subscribe to Transportation Matters on your preferred podcast platform. Our next episode will be available on New Year's Day. Martin Daum will then talk to Daniel Schaefer, Bureau Chief of Bloomberg, Germany, about globalization and international trade. Meanwhile, you might want to check out another Daimler podcast. It's called Headlights. Daimler employees around the world share their unique stories on what it's like to work at a global company. 